All right, why don't you bow with me? Let's pray. God, if I don't miss my guess, we all come here with a, a one unifying reason, and that is that we are uh, seekers after you. Uh, yes, we come to church to be with each other. Yes, we come to get inspired, uh, especially this time of year, time around Christmas, but Lord, universal to all of us as your creation is that we long for you, that we long to know you. And God, I thank you that the Christmas message, the whole meaning of Christmas is that as much as we pine for you and long for you, you reached out to us and that you came to us in the form of Jesus Christ, the man who was God incarnate. And so, Lord, as we talk about that here this morning, as we kind of plumb the depths of one of the infancy narratives, one of the stories about Jesus' birth, God, would you um, speak that truth to our hearts and our minds? Lord, maybe even some of us who've come in here, maybe not knowing much about you or even a bit hopeless in a time that's supposed to be filled with hope, would you help us to know you and would you give us hope? And Lord, for the rest of us, might you encourage us in our walks with you and might we be vehicles of your grace, as the Word of God says, manifestations of the awesome grace of God in all that we do and say. So speak to our hearts and minds, we pray now in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Well, one of the things that I love about the Bible is how it's filled with stories of very ordinary and human people, I mean, just like you and just like me, who are used powerfully by God to carry out His purposes here on planet Earth. A while back, somebody sent me an email with a subject line reading, The Bible in 50 Words. And being a pastor, I had to open that thing up, and when I did, it contained 25 two-word phrases that very creatively tried to communicate the major sweeps of the Bible in just 50 words. And let me read it for you. Look up here on the screen. It's kind of fun. It says, God made Adam bit, Noah arced, Abraham split. Jacob fooled, Joseph ruled, Bush talked, Moses balked. Pharaoh plagued, people walked, sea divided, tablets guided. Promise landed, Saul freaked, David peaked, prophets warned, Jesus born, Saul, God walked, love talked, anger crucified. Hope died, love rose, spirit flamed, word spread, God remained. And then it closed by saying, and God has room for you. I kind of like that, the Bible in 50 words. And just so some of you know that the guy who sent this to me then added in the byline there, and he said, and you got to make sure that you read the unabridged version as well. <laughs> and he's right. I mean, we can't just limit this thing to 50 words, but, but I thought it was creative to try to give the major sweeps of the Bible a pretty good job in just 50 words. And I don't know if you caught it or not, but another thing that struck me about this when I read this a couple years ago is that there's a lot of ordinary, everyday, sin-capable people mentioned here, right? I mean, like Adam and Jacob, Moses, Saul, David. And the point is clear, folks, and that is that when you look closely at the Bible, you will find that God chooses to use awfully fallen, average, run-of-the-mill people to carry out His plans, and I mean His eternal plans, for humankind. I mean, think about what you know of this book. Moses, who couldn't speak very well to be his mouthpiece to Pharaoh. Or Gideon, who had trust problems to lead the country in battle. Or Elijah, who got massively depressed to convict the leadership of his nation of sin. Or David, who acted on lust in his heart to be one of the greatest kings in all the Old Testament. Or how about Hosea, who had a rocky marriage to be a prophet. Or Peter, who was impetuous and couldn't even keep a promise to be one of the pillars of the church. Or even Paul, 
who initially hated Christians and wanted nothing to do with them and was bent on persecuting them to be one of the greatest missionary leaders this church, the church has ever known. I mean, please see, folks, ordinary people, extraordinary God. It's a pattern that you see in the Bible from front to back, from Genesis to Revelation. And the reason that this is so important this morning is that if you can grab onto this at all, if it gives you any hope at all or encouragement when it comes to your own personal walk with God, then you're ready to hear the words of the angel Gabriel as we continue to look at these angel appearances in the Christmas stories. Because here's the main gist of what the angel Gabriel says to Mary in the story before us today. And it's our main point this morning. It's what we hear the angel say. And that is that God uses very ordinary people to accomplish his redemptive purposes on earth. Did you know that? It's one of the main things that the Bible and the story before us screams to us. And that is that God chooses to use very ordinary people to accomplish his redemptive purposes here on earth. If you brought a Bible with you here this morning, I want you to turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 1. And if you happen to be here last week, you know that we looked at the opening verses of Luke 1, at the angel appearance, the very first one in the New Testament, the appearance of Zacharias in the temple. And you might remember that I mentioned when we were looking at that, that the angel Gabriel was going to go to Mary next, and so I want to read about that. And so if you brought a Bible, I want you to open up to Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 26, and if you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay, we're going to put it up here on the screen so that you can follow along as I read. Luke chapter 1 verses 26, and then I'll be reading through verse 35 for right now. It says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. Now, folks, one of the things that I noticed here is I did some study a few years ago on what we call the infancy narratives here and the angel appearances here is that I couldn't help but notice a very clear pattern here that, that, that when you look close is a pattern between God using ordinary people for His redemptive purposes. Ordinary people, redemptive purposes. And I'm going to show you here in just a minute that it actually is a pattern that repeats itself a couple of times just in these short verses here. Ordinary people, redemptive purposes. And I want to show you what I mean by that. I want you to look again at the opening verses of the story and notice that it begins by describing for you and for me ordinary people. It begins by saying that the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, in order to fully get what's happening here, and I think the intent of, of Luke here, the author, I, I need you to try to jettison for just a few minutes here all that you know about the birth story of Jesus. 
In other words, we've had 2,000 years since this birth story first occurred, and so you have 2,000 years of theology behind what you and I know about the birth narratives from Hallmark cards and Charlie Brown Christmas specials and church that you grew up in and all the things that you've been taught about this, which is probably all good stuff, but I need you to jettison that for a minute so that you might try to understand what hearing this story for the very first time in the first century would have sounded like. And because, folks, when you try to understand this through a first century person's ears, when they would first hear this, one of the first things they would think of is Nazareth, a city north of Jerusalem with about 3,000 people in it, kind of middle to upper middle class. They got nice camels in Nazareth. It overlooks the mountains of Lebanon. Been there, vacation there, nice city. In other words, they'd be thinking Nazareth, nothing out of the ordinary, akin to saying North Phoenix today, right? So if you said after church you're going to go to North Phoenix somewhere there to, to get lunch, nobody would see that as anything out of the ordinary. Kind of an ordinary setting, Nazareth. And then, as you read on, you would think a virgin engaged to a man. Again, pretty normal for first century Palestine. I mean, they had different kinds of engagements back then. They were, as many of you know, very serious engagements called betrothals. So if you were engaged to somebody back then, you didn't, you didn't sleep together. And though you might have lived in the same house because, again, there were extended families there, you were not sleeping in the same room, you were not having sex together, and for a whole year you had a very formal, lengthy engagement called a betrothal. And they took them so seriously back then that if you were betrothed to somebody, you were committed to marrying them. Like it was almost a done deal except for consummating it and having the final marriage celebration. And so if you broke it off, many times they would consider that even adultery, be unfaithful. And yet, having that understanding, it's nothing out of the ordinary for a virgin to be married or engaged to a man in that culture. And then as you heard the names, Mary and Joseph, you would think common names enough, kind of like Dick and Jane, from what we know of the culture back then, Mary was probably very young. In other words, back then, girls got married as early as 13 because it was such a brutal culture in first century Palestine. And so getting married under the protection of a family and a man was a good thing. And so our best guess is that Mary was between 14 and 18 years old, most likely 15 to 17, and Joseph probably a year or two earlier. And so you'd be thinking as you read this again through first century eyes, okay, two kids getting married. Nothing unusual about that. They were from nice families, descendants of David, and though this phrase will take on theological meaning as you read on, initially it would simply communicate to you that these two kids are from a distinguished Jewish lineage. And so please see this, folks. A totally ordinary scene is being painted here in the first two verses. An ordinary town, everyday people, a typical situation, two kids getting married and doing so in as pure a fashion as they know how. And then the angel comes along and says to Mary, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. And it says in verse 29 that she's troubled by this. And like I said last week, like, duh, who wouldn't be troubled by that, right? I mean, if an angel appeared to a 15-year-old kid today, she'd probably be troubled by this. And the angel repeats the statement by saying, Do not be afraid, Mary, because you found favor with God. Pause right there. Twice the angel says to Mary that she is favored by God. And some of you are thinking right now, well, now we're getting kind of extraordinary, right, Jamie? I mean, gone is the ordinary scene. Well, well, not really. Because what you need to know is that this word favored here is a very common word used in the New Testament. It's the Greek word charis, and it's cognate, karatu, and it's simply the word grace. 
I mean, the angel is an extraordinary thing, but what he says to Mary initially is actually a pretty common thing. I mean, this idea of being graced by God is a very Hebrew concept. In the Old Testament, Abraham was favored by God. Noah, Moses, David, Isaiah, Daniel, and many others. Paul the Apostle would go on to use the same word, charis, translated here favored, to speak to thousands of believers in all of his letters to them right at the very beginning by saying grace to you, that you've been graced by God. And so again, if you were reading this for the very first time, in first century, through first century lens, you would not find anything all that out of the ordinary that a humble, righteous person has found favor or grace with God. Please see this, folks. This is important for where we're going this morning. These are ordinary people in a relatively ordinary setting. And even when the angel comes on the scene, though this itself is not everyday stuff, what he initially says is not something completely out of the ordinary. That's what the first five verses of Luke 1 here in this part here is trying to communicate to us. That you have an ordinary scene. Ordinary people are being talked about here. And some of you might be thinking at this point, well, come on, Jamie. I mean, this is Mary we're talking about. I mean, don't you think she's gone down in history as something a bit more than just ordinary? And the answer to this question is twofold. And that's at first, certainly, not initially, was Mary anything but ordinary. And that's what I need to try to get you to see today, to kind of jettison some of our ideas, because as we're going to see in a minute, yes, some things made Mary extraordinary. We'll talk about that in just a second. But initially, what Luke is trying to get you and me to see, because it's going to hold profound ramifications for our lives today, is that you're dealing with an ordinary 15 or 16-year-old girl. That Mary was just like me and you in many ways. Ordinary setting, ordinary girl. But secondly, even when Mary begins to take on an extraordinary role and reputation, listen, it's not going to be because of anything she has done or become outside of believing and trusting in him. And we'll get to that. But she's going to take on that extraordinary role because an extraordinary God decides to enter into her ordinary world with his redemptive purposes. And that is precisely, folks, what I want you to notice happens next in our story here this morning and in the words of the angel. Because what happens next is that the focus shifts from ordinary people to an extraordinary God. Look what the angel Gabriel goes on to say in verses 31 to 33. This is amazing. He says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, and his kingdom will have no end. And so don't miss the absolute turning point here, folks. This ordinary woman named Mary is obviously going to become pregnant. And and as we're going to find out as we read on, this pregnancy is not going to be through her husband Joseph or anything like that, but through divine intervention by God himself. And because of this, the baby then will be called truly the Son of God Most High. Because it's God himself who's conceiving this baby in Mary's womb. That's the miracle of Christmas. And so they're to name him Jesus, which in Hebrew is the word Yeshua, which literally means God the Savior. And then so there's no misunderstanding. The angel tells Mary, and by extension us, three critical things that have to do with the salvation of God's people here through this little baby. You ready for these? He says you're to give him the name Jesus, or give him the throne of David forever. 
God will, give him the throne of his father David, that this Jesus, secondly, will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and then thirdly, this Jesus' kingdom will have no end. Now listen very closely, folks. These three phrases, throne of David, reign over the house of Jacob, and kingdom having no end, make no sense to you and me outside of an intricate understanding of the Old Testament. I mean, sometimes many Christians don't read the Old Testament or want to understand it, and that's to our own fault. Because the reality is, is you're not going to understand what any of these things mean outside of the Old Testament. Because you see, most good Jews in Jesus' day believed that someday God was going to bring physical and spiritual deliverance for them as a people and as a nation by providing a Messiah, a kingly deliverer, who was going to set things right with Rome and Greece, usher in a new golden age where Israel would once again rule in the Middle East, just like in the days in the Old Testament under David and Solomon. And so when the angel says here that Jesus would be this Messiah who would rule over Israel, sit on the throne of David, and that his kingdom would never end, most of Jesus' followers, when he was on this earth, believed that he was here to set up a physical, literal kingdom in the Middle East that would never end. That's what they believed. And one of the most profound realizations the first century church had under the spirit-led leadership of guys like Paul and John and Peter is that what both the angel and Jesus meant by his kingdom come is that at least at this point in redemptive history, it would be a spiritual kingdom. God reigning supreme in the hearts and minds of his new covenant people, anybody who would come to be a follower of him through Jesus, his son. And though many today point out that there's going to be a further fulfillment of this reign that's going to come through Israel in the last days, and we're going to leave this for another discussion this morning, what you don't want to miss is that what the angel is announcing here is that God's redemption, his forgiveness of sin and closeness to his followers is now upon us in Jesus Christ. It's true that in Jesus, God has come in the flesh to forgive us our sins, to set up his kingdom in the hearts and minds of his followers, you and me, the church, and that we're now to share this good news with anybody that will listen so that they can become a part of God's redemptive activity as well. That's what the angel is communicating to Mary at this point. And so add all this up, folks. A miraculous virgin birth, the Son of God Most High, given the name Jesus, God saves, and a never-ending spiritual kingdom totally committed to bringing lost sheep back into fold and teaching us to be Christ-like followers of Jesus. It's God's redemptive purposes. Come to us in this little baby and the vehicles that God initially chose to bring his redemption to earth were ordinary people just like you and just like me. Mary and Joseph, the shepherds, the magi. And just so we get it again, then you read on in the next two verses, 34 and 35, and you see the same pattern happening again. In other words, in verse 34, you see Mary saying, you know, how can this be since I'm a virgin? In other words, how can I get pregnant when I'm not even married and have no husband? Again, a very ordinary person asking a very ordinary question. And just so we know, because some of you emailed me this, there's a real quick side note from last week. Some of you said, well, you know, when you got down on Zacharias for doubting God, when he said, how can I know this for sure, doesn't Mary seem to ask the same question when she says, how can this be? Yes and no. 
Uh, what most commentators point out, and this will be instructive for you, is that there's a very subtle difference between Mary and Zacharias' question. Zacharias said, how can I know this for sure? Mary says, how will this be? Do you see the difference? In other words, Zacharias says, I doubt this happens. How can I know? Mary says, oh, this is going to happen. How's it going to happen? That kind of difference. And so she's not faithless, as we're going to see in a minute. She's got tons of faith here. But at this point, she's just a very ordinary person asking a very ordinary, ordinary process-oriented question. And then answering her question in verse 35, Gabriel gives her more details about this divine pregnancy, starts talking about the Holy Spirit, how he's going to come upon her. She'll be pregnant by the divine intervention of God. And so this baby indeed will be the Son of God. Again, please see, an extraordinary God accomplishing his purposes through a very ordinary woman. God uses very ordinary people to accomplish his redemptive purposes here on earth. And folks, this truth, once you get it, has profound and life-changing implications to me and to you today. It's true that once you see this pattern going on in this birth narrative here of, of the angel speaking to Mary and how he wants to use an ordinary person like this, once you latch on that God wants to choose us as ordinary people for his redemptive purposes, you start to put two and two together and realize that maybe 2,000 years ago, God just might want to use you and me in making a kingdom-sized dent in this world as well. In other words, maybe this is a pattern that God chooses to do, not just in the Christmas narrative stories, but throughout all the Bible. And if that's true, then maybe it's something that God has done for the last 2,000 years through very ordinary people, and then he might want to do through you and me. I mean, think about it. Many of us tend to think that kingdom activity is reserved for the chosen few, don't we? We really do. We think of the Augustans, the Calvins, and the Luthers, and the Aquinas' of history. We think of the Billy Grahams or the Mother Teresas of today. Or maybe at the very least, you kind of think of your uncle pastor friend or your pastor at Scottsdale Bible Church or your priest friend. In other words, we tend to think that, that God's real kingdom activity is reserved for the professionals among us. And yet you're not going to find that in the Bible. I mean, search long and hard. Yeah, God uses priests sometimes, but the vast majority of the times, He chooses people like fishermen. He chooses people like Mary and Joseph. He chooses shepherd boys like David. He chooses murderers like Moses. I mean, think of the people that he has chosen to pour his redemption through. They're people just like you. <laughs> people just like me. So let me ask you a question once you're starting to get this. Have you ever had something happen to you in relationship with someone else in which you knew, I mean you couldn't miss, that God himself was forcing his way in and through that relationship and accomplishing something so kingdom-oriented that it was going to change you forever? In other words, have you ever had God simply use ordinary you or an ordinary other person to affect change in the life of another person with his grace and truth in an unmistakable way? Or most simply put, has God ever used you or used somebody else in your life to bring his redemption into your life? I don't know about you, maybe I'm just weird, but I got to tell you, when I do an audit or an inventory of my life, and I look back over the 25, 30 years that I've been seeking God, I mean, from the time that I first came to Him in Christ up until just a year ago, if not this year, I see a clear pattern of God constantly using key individuals in my lives to bring transformational, defining moments 
where he breaks into my world and does something only he can do. Ordinary people he uses to bring his extraordinary grace into my life. So I was thinking way back this week about 1981 when I first became a Christian and how God used a Youth for Christ staff worker. I mean, a guy who just had the guts to come up to a rebellious, snot-nosed high school kid and share his faith with him. And then I think, as I'll tell you in a minute here about my recommitment to the Lord in 1982, how God used a, a normal, everyday friend of mine to, to, to point me to him. I think about how uh, my call to ministry in 1986 happened while driving down the road toward Detroit from the college I was in and how God used a, a professor by the name of Carl Henry to convict me that, that maybe I needed to go on to seminary if I was serious about my calling. I think about how God used my wife in the early days of our marriage to help God heal me and, and, and change me in some areas of my anxiety and even depression. I think of how I went into the senior pastor ministry back in the late 90s and how God used one of the counselors at the counseling center that I was overseeing, not seeing, at uh, that time in my life when we were going out for lunch to challenge me to get out of the nest and, and to go into the senior pastorate. I even think of how two years ago God used a friend of mine who's now with him in heaven, Doug Flood, who was the associate pastor of my last church, to say to me when I was contemplating Put, throwing my name into the ring of the search for Scottsdale Bible Church's senior pastor. I thought it was so crazy. It was not time to leave chagrin and none of that. Doug looked at me and said, Jamie, if you don't do this, you'll regret it for the rest of your life. He said, you need to at least see if this is what God would have for you. God used that conversation, and aren't you glad that he did? And, uh, and so that happens a lot, right? No, you don't have to clap at that. But that happens. And my guess is that if you and I were having a cup of coffee this morning, and I said, tell me about a time when God broke into your world. Yeah, there's times where it's just in your quiet time or whatever, but many times it's through another person, amen? An ordinary person. I will never forget one of the most profound times this happened to me. I, um, as I mentioned just a second ago, I, I became a Christian in 1981, growing up in a pretty non-Christian home. We went to church, we were what we call C&E Christians. You all know what that means, Christmas and Easter only. And uh, so that was my family growing up. So for those of you who are C&E Christians, welcome. We'd like to make you into regular Christians. So um, <laughs> we can talk to you about how to do that. And, and so uh, I was that way, and, and uh, I came to Christ in 1981, and uh, I was a junior in high school. And like some of your testimonies, when I came to Christ, um, it was a very real conversion, but I had a ton of pressure on me in certain areas of my life where I had some trouble changing. And one of the biggest pressures in my small hometown of Chagrin Falls, Ohio, at that very secular high school, was drinking. I mean, I think it still goes on today, but a lot of kids get into drinking. Alcohol is very prevalent, and that was huge in my high school. It was huge in the circles that I ran in. And so when I accepted Christ, one of the things that I had trouble giving up, I wasn't an alcoholic or anything, but there was so much peer pressure that I still struggled with going out every weekend and getting bombed with my friends. And my campus life leader was so wonderful with me. I mean, he'd kind of let me give a confession to him every week, and he'd nurture me along with this, but I never had a lot of victory on that, only because of the peer pressure not wanting to lose my friends. I was in a Bible study at that time with another Christian from my high school by the name of Bill, and, and Bill actually ended up being the best man at my wedding. He was a good guy, but, but Bill was not known as a hypocrite like me because Bill didn't drink at all, and he was involved. He was like head of the basketball team and football team, so he was a real jock, and, and everybody liked Bill and saw him as this kind of holy roller, real Christian moral guy. But I knew better. You see, I knew because Bill would confess this in Bible study that he was seeing a girl very seriously, and let's just say it was not the most pure relationship one could have in high school. And so Bill would confess that in Bible study. I'd confess the drinking, and, and our campus life leader, Joe, would try to help us out, patiently nurturing us during that time. 
And so I graduated high, graduated high school in the state, and I went off to Hillsdale College in Michigan, and for my first three months at Hillsdale College, I was like Jonah running from God. You ever read the story? I mean, I was just running from God. I joined a fraternity. I became head of my pledge classes, uh, what they call it, uh, an activities director, which simply meant that I bought all the beer, all right? So that's what I did. And every weekend, I mean, at least twice a weekend, I was out getting bombed, just running full blast from God, knowing it was wrong, knowing that I was not in walking fellowship with Him. In fact, I felt so guilty about it, I used to pray for forgiveness before I'd go out, which is really pathetic. And that's where I was. Some, hey, some of you, you guys are laughing, you're going, that's me right now, Jamie, we'll get to that in a minute. And so that's where I was. And I was struggling intensely, and so I'll never forget, November of 1983, I'm coming back to Chagrin Falls, it's Thanksgiving break, all the college kids come home, and there was a big party at Damien Sell's house. And I thought, I can't wait to go to this party. And so I can remember that night, leaving my parents home, and I'm putting on my big orange down hunting jacket. And the reason that I wore this jacket is not just because it was cold, but because it had six pockets for six beers. And that's what I was going out to do that night. So I'm filling it with six beers. I know I'm popping all your guys' bubble with me, but this was a long time ago. So I'm going out there, and, uh, and, and I go to this party, and I'm just all geared up to do my thing. And I'm seeing all my friends and acting like an idiot. And all of a sudden, I ran into Bill. And, you know, Bill was pretty judgmental when we were in high school. Again, he used to always judge me for drinking. I'd judge him for the, pre- for the sex and all that stuff. And, and, and we'd be like, you know, at each other's throats. But I saw him, and I could tell right away something was different about him. I mean, he looked at me with a compassion, a grace, but that piercing truth-like look. You guys know what I'm talking about? I could tell something's going on with this guy. And as he started to talk to me, for whatever reason, I was just drawn to that conversation that night. So I remember sitting down there, picture a whole party going on, and me and Bill sitting there in this living room, and I'm on my second or third beer, and I stopped drinking right away. Because as Bill's talking to me, he's basically sharing this message with me. He said, Jamie, i got to confess something to you. He said, both of us were real mess-ups in high school. He said, let's admit it. We accepted Christ, we, 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 and we went to Bible study, but, but, but there were things in our lives that were not right. We had not repented them of them. We had not laid them down. And he said, I just got to tell you, my first three months at college, he went to Grove City College, he said, God has totally grabbed my heart. He said, I realize that my life is his, that he is mine, and that I've confessed the things I've done, and now I'm walking with him like I never have before. And he said, the joy and the peace and the purpose that I have in my life right now has made everything that happens before this pale in comparison. And I remember feeling so, I was just burning in my heart, thinking joy, peace, purpose. I got none of that. I want all of that. And I went home that night based on that conversation. I mean, I left the party right then. And I went home, took off my jacket, sat at my parents' kitchen table, and with just me and God for three hours, I poured through the Gospel of Matthew. I poured through Philippians. I was so Bible stupid at that time, guys, that I thought Jesus wrote it all. I did. And that's what a lot of people who don't know the Bible think. They think, well, Bible, Jesus, he must have written it. I'm reading Matthew, I'm reading Philippians. And all I know is that even in my ignorance, even in my previous running from God, I laid it down that life, that night. I just said, God, my life is yours. No looking back. From now on, I'm not messing around. I'm not playing games. And I went back to Hillsdale College with that recommitment. And my poor fraternity, they wish I never joined I mean, I'm telling you, within a year, they're going, would you just shut up now about the gospel? I mean, we're here to party. I said, no, you're not. You're not here to party. We're here to talk about Jesus. And that's why I became a pastor. Amen? And that's what I've done for the last 25 years. 
And yeah, there have been valleys and there have been mountaintops and all that stuff, but God used one conversation, one ordinary person, who as we're going to see in a minute, simply was on bended knee in his heart before Jesus as Savior to effect redemptive change in my life. And I can't tell you how many times God has used conversations like that, and I think you know that too. I can't tell you how many times he's used me when I'm humble and submitted to him for those kind of conversations and when I have the courage to enter into the fray. I mean, think about it, folks. The God of the universe working in and through the Holy Spirit who lives inside those who follow Jesus to bring redemptive and transformative experiences to others as we relate to them and pour into them with love and truth and grace. It's a reality that the words of the angel with Mary convey to us that God uses ordinary people just like you and just like me to accomplish his mission of grace in this world. And so think about it. I mean, even just this week, you're going to have people who come into your life that are going to need to know and hear about God's redemptive purposes in their lives. They are. They're going to need a touch from a Savior. And you have the wonderful opportunity to give them the gift of grace, God's redemptive love, by pointing them words of hope, words of life to Jesus Christ, the one who has changed your life. Because let's face it, unless they have Christ in their life, unless their soul is alive and singing with forgiveness and grace, then no matter what kind of front they put on, they're still in need of redemption. I mean, that's one of the deceptive natures of a place like Scottsdale or Chagrin Falls, where I came from. The reality is, is that it can become so whitewashed, it can become so good in so many ways, even with a down economy, that you assume people are doing okay. And the reality is, is that even if during this terrible economy right now, you're able to skirt some of the things going on, even if you're able to take some hits in life, maybe some loss through death or a kid that doesn't turn out right or some emotions that don't always work, so you go to see a therapist, even if you're able to get through all of that, the reality is if you've not done business with Jesus, if you've not found peace with God, as Billy Graham used to say, by accepting Christ as Lord and Savior, then you're not okay. And don't let anybody fool you in their lives. Because again, we live in a town in which everybody puts their best face forward. And yet see into their soul. Realize the crying need that they have. Realize that true joy, true peace, and true purpose is not ours outside of Jesus Christ. That's the message of Christmas. That's the hope of Christmas. It's why Jesus is so incredibly important. And so the only question becomes, once we've established this, folks, is what is it going to take? In other words, some of you might be asking, Jamie, what's it going to take then for God to use an ordinary purpose like me, person like me to accomplish his redemptive purposes on this earth today? Or put another way, some of you say like I do at times, well, I don't feel all that usable in the hands of God. And so what makes me usable? What makes an ordinary person like Mary usable in the hands of God? And I want to share with you one last thought here this morning, and it's our take-home point. And it's a direct quote in its most literal form, from the words of the angel in verse 37. And here it is. This is what it's going to take. And that is that nothing said by God can be impossible on earth. Nothing said by God can be impossible on earth. In other words, do you believe that when God says that he wants to use you, 
Even if you think it defies all odds, even if you say, God, you don't understand that family member, you don't understand my neighbor, you don't understand that friend of mine who has not bent the knee to Jesus for, for decades now, even if you say all that, nothing said by God can be impossible on earth. In other words, like Mary, you have to ask yourself, do I believe? Do I believe that Jesus is really real and that this is not just wishful thinking, it's not a fable, it's not pie-in-the-sky church stuff, but that this is rough and raw? God entering into a stable. God entering into a terrible economic situation in the first century. Do I believe he can do that again today? Do you? And if you do, then you can believe that he can use you. Because once you believe him and follow him and lay it down, you're usable in his sight. Warts and pimples and all. Look at the closing three verses of the second angelic appearance of the New Testament here in Luke 1. Look at verses 36 through 38. This should convince all of us. The angel is speaking and he says this, And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. Look at what God can do. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. Now get this. For nothing will be impossible with God. And then here's the key, verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Boy, that's the difference between Zacharias that we looked at last week and Mary. And simply notice there that when she says bond slave of the Lord, I love that translation because it's not just talking about a servant that they had back then, but one who was in total submission to a master. She's basically saying, I lay it all down. And when she says, be it done according to your word, she's simply saying in the most passively receptive way she can, God, I'm wide open. I'm wide open to being used by you if this is what you're choosing to do. 15 years old, going to have lots of trouble with my family, don't even know what's to come. Be it done according to your word. It's a powerful statement. She believed God, an ordinary person, and God moved extraordinarily in her life. And so what does it mean for you and I? Well, we simply believe him. We believe his promises. You believe that he is more powerful, more capable, more good, more able to do what he says than anything or anyone that you've ever known. You believe that he wants to use you, ordinary and everyday you, in transformational ways in the lives of those around you. And in the incubator of this kind of faith, I promise you, God enters in and he moves. He shows himself for who he is and he uses you redemptively in the lives of others. And so in closing, let me ask you, what's it going to be for you this Christmas season? One of the traps that you and I have in our evangelical subculture of just being Christians who are known for taking the Bible seriously and following Jesus is that it's very easy to approach holidays as business as usual. You know what I mean? Like go to a few parties, buy a few gifts, throw the tree up because we're normal people. You know, go to a Christmas Eve service, wear a red sweater to Sunday before Christmas, that kind of stuff, right? I and mean, that's just what we do. Those aren't bad things to do. Those are good. But please see, that's business as usual for you and me. Or could it be a Christmas for you like the very first one, where God incarnate, God come to us in Jesus, so inhabits the places of your heart and mind that he turns the ordinary into the extraordinary as his kingdom, which never ends, reigns in and through you and even to those around you. I sure hope it's the latter. I hope that for me. I hope that for you. It's a vision statement of our church. I mean, I don't know what you think it means when we say that we want to become a community of Christ followers 
who are marked by an unwavering faith, a merry like faith, be it done to me according to your word, and unconditional love. What my friend Bill did to me that night at that party, reaching out to somebody who was running like Jonah and saying, can I gently call you back? Those two things in the hands of God are powerful indeed because he is extraordinary and he wants to work that way in your life. Why don't you pray with me? Father, I thank you that uh, from Genesis to Revelation, from front to back in the Bible, you show yourself as a God who likes to engage and, and inhabit and enter into human relationships. The, the Lord, those who claim a deistic approach to their theology that see you as kind of starting the whole thing but then taking a step back and not getting involved in this world, at least biblically speaking, are not correct. That God, you are God who intervenes in our lives on a regular basis. And Lord, as we've established today, I see in the Scriptures you intervene primarily in the realm of relationship. We thank you that you're a relational God, that you desire a relationship with us, and that you inhabit the relationships. As Jesus said, for where two or three come together, there you are among them. And so, God, I pray that as we get that today, as we realize the ordinary and the extraordinary, and that we're about the ordinary and that you're about the extraordinary, would you use us? And, Lord, we know the only thing that can prevent us being used in your sight is when we're like Jonah running from you. And that, Lord, when we run back to you, when we lay it down, when we become serious followers of your Son, Jesus, both in our belief and our actions, that then you use us as ordinary people to affect your redemptive purposes on earth. And so, God, do that this season. I pray, God, that I can't even imagine what would happen if Scottsdale Bible Church, five, 6,000 strong, even half of us were to be used this way by you because we laid it down for you. I can't imagine the impact in Scottsdale and Phoenix and around the world. And, Father, you've been doing this for thousands of years. And so would you do it through us, we pray. Would you do it to us, God, if we need to be brought back to you? Thank you that you never give up. Thank you that you're the hound of heaven. And thank you that you hound us. And thank you that you use us. We love you. We go now in the name of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. And all of us say together, amen. amen. God bless you. We'll see you Christmas Eve.